This is the Future of HR Podcast, Episode 74. The one that almost like summarizes the whole book, if I was going to say, Laszlo Bach, who was uh, head of HR, they called it people operations or something. He gets to Google and Google had this tradition, which Larry Page started. And Larry was saying that a lot of people at Stanford Computer Science Department are mad at me because we interview them so many times before we say yes or no that they just get mad at us. But this tradition just stayed on and just became just something that people did because they always did it. Laszlo Back talked about how they do 8, 10, 12, 15, 25 interviews before making an offer or not. To get rid of all that friction, think of all the interviews people did all the time, you have to schedule them and everything. He put in a rule that if you had more than um, four interviews, job interviews for a candidate, you had to get written permission from him. Just a little speed bump. And boom, the number of interviews dropped dramatically. Why is friction both good and bad for your organization? How can leaders identify and reduce bad friction? Hi, I'm your host, JP Elliott, and this is the Future of HR podcast, the only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field, and most importantly, your career to the next level. Hey everyone, if you've been listening to the podcast, then you know I'm incredibly passionate about inspiring and developing the next generation of HR leaders. But you may not know, I'm also passionate about speaking to and working with HR organizations to enhance their capabilities. In fact, one of the coolest things that happened since I've launched the podcast is that several HR organizations have asked me to speak about the future of HR and to support their efforts to develop their HR teams. It's been an incredible honor to work with these HR organizations in 2023, and I'm looking to have an even bigger impact in 2024. If you'd like me to speak to your HR organization, or if I can ever be helpful in building the capability of your HR team, please reach out as I would love to hear from you. Also, I want to say thank you to a few of you who have sent me notes recently on LinkedIn, thanking me and telling me how much the podcast has meant to you, how it's helped your career, and how I'm fulfilling my mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. Notes like this make it all worthwhile and give me the motivation to keep going each and every week. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for listening to the podcast and supporting what we're trying to do. And with that, my guest this week is Bob Sutton. Bob's an organizational psychologist and best-selling author of eight books, including The No Asshole Rule, The Knowing Doing Gap, and Scaling Up Excellence. Bob has been on Stanford faculty since 1983, and he served as a professor of management science and engineering through 2023. He's now a professor emeritus at Stanford. Over the past decade, his main focus has been on studying scale and leading at scale, or more simply put, how to help organizations grow spread good things and remove bad things, and enhance performance and innovation in teams and organizations. Today, I'll be talking to Bob about his latest book, The Friction Project, which he co-wrote with Huggy Rao. The Friction Project unpacks insights from their seven-year learning adventure, where Bob and Huggy use academic research, case studies, classes, and workshops, and ongoing dialogue with scholars, executives, and innovators learn how smart organizations make the right things easier and the wrong things harder, and how to do it in a way that doesn't drive employees and customers crazy. 
I've been a fan of Bob's work for a long time, and it was an absolute honor to spend some time with him. And as you'll soon hear, Bob is an optimist, and his positivity and sense of humor shines through. And during my conversation with Bob, we'll discuss why you should think like a friction fixer, regardless of your position, when and how to apply good friction to slow things down for better decision-making, how to identify good and bad friction in your organization, why empathetic leaders seek out the friction in their organizations and then work to reduce it, and how to play the subtraction game and how it will help your organization and much, much more. Bob, welcome to the Future of HR podcast. How are you? I'm great. I'm so excited to meet you. The Future of HR is something that means a lot to me and I love your work. I'm excited to be here. I appreciate that, Bob. I mean, if you're excited to meet me, that's blowing my mind because I'm excited to meet you. I have followed your career, read your books as an I.O. psychologist and admired what you've done. And so really excited to talk with you today and get into the new book, The Friction Project. I think it's just so interesting. And so let's start there. You've written eight books, <laughs> including your most recent, The Friction Project. And in my opinion, looking at the common thread through all your work and books and research is really a desire to improve how organizations work. Is this correct or is there something else yeah, that's going yeah, on? Yeah, I, I think that's it. Since we're both organizational, in my case, organizational psychologists, I was just thinking a lot of it goes back to my mentor, Robert Elkan, who, among other things, Dan Katz wrote The Social Psychology of Organizations and one of the fathers of modern organizational psychology. And Bob always had this perspective that we owe it as scholars, we owe it to the students we teach and to the organizations in the world to try our best in struggle to come up with ideas about how organizations can both perform better by kind of capitalist standards and also be humane organizations. And he would just even refuse to discuss trade-offs between the two because to him being humane was as important as making money. I don't know whether that's exactly true, but that's the set of values that I try to embrace in my work. So I tend to avoid conversations, which is, is treating people make you more money? Because Bob taught me it doesn't matter because if you treat people like dirt and you get richer, you're not a good person, you're not a good organization. Well, that's true. And if you treat people like that, it's not always sustainable, right? At some point, people figure it out and hopefully that's changing. But I think that's great because it sounds like he's way ahead of his time in terms of having organizations that have a purpose. All the stakeholders have to win for organizations to do the great work you're talking about. Yeah, Bob talked about that for you. I've been back to the 50s, he talked about that. That's how I was sort of raised intellectually. Well, I'd love to hear that. And let's talk more about what made you decide to write your latest book with your co-author, Huggy Rao, The Friction Project, How Smart Leaders Make the Right Things Easier and the Wrong Things Harder. How it started, our last book together, almost a decade ago, was uh, Scaling Up Excellence. There were all these organizations that we worked with, and I could sort of go down the list. Quite early, we, we had a lot of contact with Facebook. With Google, I talked to Larry Page and they had maybe 300 people and interviewed him about his interview process with Jeff Effer, who you've had on the show as well, Salesforce. And what would happen is as these organizations got larger and more complex and older, they'd have more hierarchy. People would feel like they couldn't get anything done. Huggy and I started talking to execs, like, tell us about the friction in your organization. And it was like a therapy session. Oh, I live in a frustration factory. Remember that. I'm an email jail. Things like that. The star of this is some except to Huggy. I'm living in a world of shit and they ex expect me to get something done and show initiative. We realized that there was something there about the frustration. 
and we can get into this, but as the project continued, we had some interesting discoveries that friction isn't all bad and there is something you can do about it. But it took us like eight years. I mean, it says seven years in the book, but it's been a year since we said seven years. As you started to have the conversations, did you initially think, gosh, people just like to complain, right? Human nature for us is to say, well, you know, gosh, this is really hard and that. And then did you finally break through that well, and realize? Well, well, I love that question because an important mentor to me is uh, David Kelly of IDEO fame and founder of the Stanford D School. David always talks about the difference between recreational bitching and real pain. At first, it's a little bit therapeutic, but there, there is real pain because what ends up happening, and it's one of those things that many of us are both masters and victims of this, whatever, just to start with some of the standard stuff when we go in deeper is too many emails. So the book starts with an email from a senior administrator at Stanford, 1,266 words long, 7,500 word attachment. And gee, will you spend a Saturday with us brainstorming about the new sustainability school? I thought that sending that out to more than 2,000 Stanford faculty, if you did the multiplication, was a waste of time. And I did this thing where I edited if I was her thing. And I could get it down to 400 words in about five minutes because she went into all these points that are irrelevant. And to me, that's just a magnification effect. Too many meetings. One of the things that we've gotten into lately is one thing that happens in organizations is that the number of apps you're required to use proliferates the size of the tech stack. That's really hard to get rid of because everybody adds their PEC software. There is real friction and real drag that we all impose on one another. There is real pain. And then, of course, there's recreational bitching, which we all do. <laughs> right. What's well, a great distinction. And I think as leaders, whether we only have a small team or we're senior leaders, we create sometimes more work than we even think about, right? We don't think about the unintended consequences of that email and the time it takes to read it, et cetera. And I love the fact that you were able to say that in academia and say, hey, we could have done this better. I hope they took that feedback. Being the shy person I am, I actually wrote my provost, who was actually the boss of this person, and complained about the length of the email. And she kind of defended the person who sent it, but I noticed that my provost and the person I complained about, the emails got a little shorter after that. I don't know whether I get credit for that or not, but this is our former provost. She was actually quite open-minded. The other side is I think about our journey, and this is sort of the good news is we discovered two. One is there's actually something you can do about it. This is one of the projects I started out pessimistic, and I got more optimistic, and so did Huggy as things went on. To give you my favorite example, the Department of Motor Vehicles in California, one of the best experiences I had was visiting the Department of Motor Vehicles. And we talk about this notion of the cone of friction. No matter who we are in an organization, you kind of be aware of whether you can make things better or worse. And there was some DMV employee who went through the line and did triage, gave us forms, told us what window to go to. And I got out of there in 15 minutes and I was in a state of confusion. It was so good. And then one o'clock today, I'm talking to the head of the Department of Motor Vehicles at Stanford with Huggy about their efforts to improve customer experience. If you can fix a department of motor vehicles, my God, you could fix, for example, Comcast. I got more and more optimistic. And the other reason, and we could dig into this, is there's all sorts of reasons why friction is good. That surprised us how many reasons we think it's good to slow down and make things hard and stuff like that. We started out with a getting rid of sludge type book, and we move more and more to good friction. Yeah, and I think that's great. The DMV, the brand on a DMV is challenging to, to change. So maybe they might fix the process. They're going to have to work on the perception, right? What's really, I think, interesting, Bob, is let's talk about that because you're right. There's differences between good and bad friction, and you and Huggy write about that. Tell us more about the two types of friction because I think we focus, you're right, more on the negative part of the friction 
but friction can actually create fire. There's lots of things in life that if you go too fast or they're too easy, the joke one that we talk about is there was this story that was in the media that we tracked down that there was a six-year-old girl. She said to her family's the Echo, the Amazon device, that she'd like a dollhouse and some sugar cookies. And two or three days later, a $250 dollhouse and $50 worth of cookies arrived at their front door. That's the case of there needs to be a little bit more friction there. So that's a fun one. But when you start going through what should be hard and what should be easy, there's a lot of research that shows that when you're confused and you don't know what's going on, this is Daniel Kahneman's Nobel Prize winning work, that's a time when maybe you should slow down and figure out what's going on. There's some evidence that doctors often make diagnoses too quickly. Maybe the best thing is, to quote Danny Kahneman, is uh, don't just do something, stand there and figure out what's going on. That's one time. And then the research, which you know well, the research on creativity is I, it's really hard to figure out how to make creativity very efficient. Teresa Mobley has devoted like her whole career, she's at Harvard, to studying creativity. And her argument is that when people try to rush it or try to make it too efficient, they make a serious mistake. And one of my favorite stories in the book is, I can't believe this, Harvard Business Review interviewed Jerry Seinfeld. And they ask him, first of all, they say, you and Larry David, virtually all of the dialogue in the writer's room, and it was really stressful. And that's one of the reasons you ended the show is you got exhausted. Could McKinsey have helped you? And Jerry Seinfeld said, who's McKinsey, which is just beautiful. They told him it was a consulting firm. And then he said, are they funny? And they said, no, I know McKinsey. They are not funny. And then he said, we don't want to make it efficient. The hard way is the right way, which is kind of an evidence-based comment going into the capitalist world. One of the execs that I love most in the world, Ed Catmill, author of Creativity Incorporated, which might be the best business book ever written, by the way, to do a plug for somebody else's book. Ed's perspective, he led Pixar for 26 years. When we asked Ed about efficiency, he just turns his head and said, it's nice when it happens faster rather than slower, but we don't think about efficiency. We just iterate until it's good. And then the final thing that I would say, and we have like 15 different reasons we should slow down. There's very good evidence that the more time pressure you put people under, the more likely they are to do unethical things. That's another reason to slow down. When people are in a rush, they tend to cheat. They tend to take shortcuts and all that stuff. And I could go on forever about when to slow down, even though I hate friction and it drives me crazy. Well, obviously you wrote a book about it. Plus, you can tell the passion that comes through with you. And we all hate friction. But what I love about the book is you give a methodology for people to think about friction and start to identify and talk about it. Because a lot of times we're not talking about this in organizations right. with our leaders. It's happening to us. But when you start to name it and claim it, and then we can say, now we can do something about it. And so I love the language you put in. And one of the things you talk about, the art and science of friction forensics. Right. So talk more about what is friction forensics and how you do that. Well, to us, these are diagnostic questions to try to figure out whether you should make things hard or easy. We've already talked about some of those. In some of those, essentially, are you in a cognitive minefield and you don't know what the heck you're doing? That's a time to add some friction and slow down. When everybody's absolutely exhausted, that might be a time to have them slow down and rest. Another thing which is related to the kind of decision, and this is straight out of uh, Jeff Bezos of Amazon fame, is whether a decision is reversible or not, or how easy it is to reverse. If you're making the decision, let's say, to sell your company, that's fairly irreversible. You might want to be careful and analyze that, or to buy a company, that's a case where you might want to argue. Uh, just to give you an example of a company that I think at least used to do this well, when eBay would make an acquisition, they had a process where in front of the board, they'd have two employees 
argue the different sides, sort of black hat, white hat, to do an acquisition. So one of the people we talk about in the book, Michael Deering, when he was an eBay executive, he was the person whose job was to argue, do we acquire PayPal or not? This is Elon Musk, Reed Hoffman, PayPal of that fame. And they did acquire PayPal, but they had a considered argument in front of the board with people assigned opposing positions. That's the kind of analysis you can make rather than what we just saw happen with uh, OpenAI, where they fired the CEO over the weekend and that was turned out to be a mistake. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to double click back on that, Bob, because Jeff right. Bezos had the idea of this one-way door or two-way right. door. And it's a great concept for HR to think about because sometimes we get so worked up on this decision of like, what day should we have people come to the office? Right. That's, that's kind of a two-way door decision. You can change that pretty easily. But to your point, if you're selling a business, you can't change that. So I think people should think about that and what friction is required to make a good decision. Yeah, that's an interesting example. And one of the organizations that I've been lucky to work with, especially through the pandemic intermittently, is Microsoft. One of the things that HR there that was smart and Satya Nadella would talk about publicly is whatever they would do, sending people home, trying experiments with hybrid work. Bezos was always really clear that this is what we're trying now and this will almost certainly change. The example that we use in the book, another way we put it is that wise leaders treat organizations as malleable prototypes. The most entertaining reorganization I've ever seen up front, David Kelly of IDEO fame, who we discussed, I was an IDEO fellow for about 19 years, and they did a reorganization where the Palo Alto office got so big that they broke it into three different studios from one because it was just a morass, it was out of control. And this is an organization, since you know what most organizations are like, where you are told what to do. Three people stood up and made a pitch about why you should join my studio. So people actually got the choice of what group they were going to be in, which I, I have never seen anything like that in my life. But still, that didn't matter. They were freaking out. What Kelly does in his trademark, he's got a Groucho Mark type mustache. Every picture you ever see him, he has the mustache. He shaves off his mustache and we're just freaking out. And my favorite thing was, well, his then wife, she went out and got out of the shower naked and saw him with his mustache shaved off and she screamed and put on her clothes. And that was sort of my reaction too. And he said, this reorganization is like my mustache. We can grow it back. We can change if it doesn't work. It's a two-way door. There's always perception reality. That was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. David, really, his ability to sell things in a simple, empathetic, human way, he's amazed me my entire, I'm following him around for about 20 years now. He's just one of the people I admire. Yeah, I've always been a big fan of IDEO. In fact, I actually left IBM and went and started a brand strategy and design company with a creative. But my business partner was an ex-creative director from Warner Brothers and Sesame Street. And we, we did a lot of licensing brand work. And it, it was I learned a lot. But I definitely always learned about what design is. And I've always had that passion for that. And yeah. an incredible thinking produce. So more importantly, that's an amazing example for organizations to think about. It's probably going to change because it will change. The world is changing around us. And sometimes we want to lock in and hold on certain things like hierarchy or who yeah. I report to or where I sit. But the reality is none of us are safe. It's constantly changing. And I feel like change is happening more than it's happened ever before. Yeah, Bob, I want to ask you kind of a little bit more. You talk a little bit about in the book, the importance uh -huh. that everyone sees themselves as a friction fixer, which I think yes. is a great, great way to think about our rules. Just talk more. What does it mean to be a friction fixer? And this is an issue whether or not things are hard or easy in, in organizations. And this is one of the things that we focus on and believe is that very often it was treated as an orphan problem, as somebody else's job. And very often people would blame other people. 
the DMV is an example, like a lower level employee at the DMV could actually make things better. So from our perspective, the movement or perspective we're trying to push is that it helps if everybody thinks of their cone of friction. So the influence they have to make life harder or easier on the people around us, also thinking of themselves as trustees of other people's time. So that to me is a trustee. It's sort of like being aware, well, I can write a thousand word email to 2000 people, or I can write a 500 word email and you kind of do the calculation of how much time that you're wasting. That's how we think about it. And we've got a lot of examples in the book about what's worth doing, what isn't. And one of my favorite ones, and I don't know how we get this in, but there's good friction and there's bad friction. And our favorite examples are when people use good friction to get rid of bad friction. The one that almost like summarizes the whole book, if I was going to say, Laszlo Bach, who was uh, head of HR, they called it people operations or something at Google for eight or nine years. He wrote, you ever interviewed him? He wrote Work Rules. He's a great guy. Yeah, he's on the list. He's on 2024 list. <laughs> oh, he should be. He's a great guy. He gets to Google and Google had this tradition, which Larry Page started. In fact, Jeff Pfeffer and I interviewed Larry Page in 2002, somewhere I have the, the tape. And Larry was saying that a lot of people at Stanford Computer Science Department are mad at me. Because we interview them so many times before we say yes or no that they just get mad at us. And he had this philosophy. They had to be great engineers and they had to be have leadership potential. So Marissa Mayer, who eventually became actually CEO of Yahoo, she would be somebody who would be a star in that system. But this tradition just stayed on and just became just something that people did because they always did it. Laszlo Back talked about how they do 8, 10, 12, 15, 25 interviews before making an offer or not. To get rid of all that friction, think of all the interviews people did, all the time you have to schedule them and everything. He put in a rule that if you had more than um, four interviews, job interviews for a candidate, you had to get written permission from him. Just a little speed bump. And boom, the number of interviews dropped dramatically. And one that I just learned about, and this is a big problem in a lot of organizations for those of us who work, there's so many apps. I mean, with all due respect to record this, I had to deal with yet another new app. People in organizations, they just buy apps. And there's a thing in organizations that they call the credit card problem. In fact, people who sell software price it so it's below spending limits in organizations so everybody can add their own software. One of the organizations, this is uh, Paul Leonardi from the University of California, Santa Barbara, told me about this example from his work, that there was this company, what they did where the CTO put in a rule where if any new software, you had to get written approval from him, the CTO. And they discovered things like they were paying for four different versions of Slack. They had eight or nine different ways to do video calls, and they went from, I think it was 55 to 20 apps in about six months. To me, that's an example of using good friction to get rid of bad friction. And also, this is something that I hate to say in both of these examples, that sometimes when it's an orphan problem and everybody is sort of adding their little piece of friction, that sometimes it, it requires people in power to put in some rules or to make decisions, and they shouldn't be draconian about it, but sometimes authority does help. Well, absolutely, because I think your point of that, the cone of friction, right? What's the locus of your control? Like, what can you yes. actually change in the company? And then the second concept is like, well, how are you focused on others? Because you're impacting other people. And the fact that we should be other-focused is so critical. Right. And when we're me-focused, what I want, what I need, but actually what's impacting my team? How's it impacting the organization? And so good for Laszlo and the team to make some of those rules and put those in place. I do want to talk about some of the friction traps. This is the part I'm most excited about because when I read, your, when I read the book, this is where you start to go, oh, yes, I've seen this. And one uh -huh. of the most common ones we talked about, you called the oblivious leaders. I've heard of the uh, C-suite amnesia, you know, that people have. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like they made the decision last week and now you've forgotten about it. But tell, tell us more about how leaders can create this friction 
for better or for worse, I wish there was a better way to organize humans than in a hierarchy with a, a relatively small number of people having power. But whether we're talking about baboons, humans, dogs, there's pecking order in life. It's hard to avoid. And so there will be end up people being with a lot of power. Just as a psychologist, when you put people in power, all these predictable things happen, which is that, uh, first of all, they have privilege. They don't have to suffer the inconveniences that the little people do. Everything from they don't have to order lunch. It's easier for them to get a parking space, all, all these different things in life. And then the second thing is Dr. Keltner wrote this book called The Power Paradox, and he's done a stream of research. He's a psychologist from UC Berkeley, and he can show that when people are in power, they tend to focus more on their own needs, less on the needs of others, and they act like the rules don't apply to them. So all this stuff happens when people are powerful. As you say it, amnesia, that was what you called it. Yeah. And it's not like all humans automatically fall prey to this, but it's something that you got to guard against. We talk about a whole bunch of consequences of this. Perhaps my favorite one is what I call, or what we call, executive magnification. There's all this research on resistance to change, but one of the hallmarks of power, and we all know this, is whether we're talking about baboons or humans, that the people in power, they pay less attention to the underlings and their underlings pay to them. Some of it is there's just more because of a hierarchy, but it's also the boss or the alpha male in a baboon troop can do stuff to you and they can provide resources. When you're in power, people watch you more closely than you watch them. While a lot of executives talk about resistance to change, there's all these incidents. And I learned this from the great, late, great Jim March, one of the most prestigious organizational theorists ever. He always talked about how people would watch leaders really close. They would exaggerate what the leaders wanted. And one of my favorite examples, which is simple, is the blueberry muffin story, which is in the book. This was the CEO of a Fortune 10 company, become CEO of a Fortune 10 company. And I heard this from his former executive assistant. So it came from a pretty good source. What happens is that an early meeting, he just comments, breakfast meeting, oh, there's no blueberry muffins here. And he just was like a random trader. He didn't particularly love blueberry muffins. And then for years, everywhere he went, there was piles of blueberry muffins because it was in the notes, loves blueberry muffins. Make sure you have the blueberry muffins. And eventually somebody told him it was in the notes. And that happens with large-scale corporate initiatives too. And I've seen this everything from design thinking, which we were talking about a little bit earlier. There's some organizations I've been part of where I don't think the CEO meant to have everybody required to take a, a one-hour design thinking course, whether or not they needed it. It was sort of like required sexual harassment training in some of the organizations we worked with, which actually got people pissed off. It wasn't even appropriate or they weren't interested in it. They were just required to do it. Executive magnification is something I've always been quite interested in. Executive magnification is pretty awesome. Another friction trap you talked about, Bob, that I thought was really fascinating was the fact that we're always adding work or projects. And so we should actually be subtracting work and projects. And you talk about the subtraction mindset. Tell us more about that. There's a bunch of research that is done by folks at University of Virginia that was in Nature Magazine, an academic journal. And they did 20 different studies, everything from building a Lego model to planning a vacation, to fixing a university, their argument, and they have a lot of evidence, and essentially that default human problem-solving style, or it's a bias really, is to fix things by adding things rather than subtracting things. And there's probably some evolutionary basis of this because the people who hoarded more food probably were the ones who sort of lived. There might be something adaptive about it. So there's that bias. And then the other argument we make is that at least in every organization I've ever been in, the people who start new initiatives who build bigger fiefdoms, those are the people who tend to get rewarded, not the people who shrink the size of their teams and don't start initiatives that overload people already. 
There's all these things that cause us as humans and then also organizational incentives that cause us to add stuff to organizations. My favorite one is just this bias that, that anything that we as humans want to add to organizations, in my case, I was involved in the design thinking movement, and I always would think that every organization needed design thinking, and I'm not sure that it actually does in every place anymore. But there's a quote from the uh, late great comedian George Carlin, which is, my shit is stuff and your stuff is shit, which I think summarizes a lot of psychological literature, that if we work on something hard and we think it's important and we devote our life to it, we want to add it to the organization. And, and in my case, I would plead guilty to design thinking somebody else. It might be a digital transformation. I'm not sure that um, I need chat GPT for everything right now, even though a lot of my colleagues in computer science think that it should be my buddy for everything that I do. But to me, that's just that sort of sickness. That's the bad news. The good news, which is what we focus on, is that, and this comes out of also the research that was in nature from the University of Virginia uh, group. Lottie Klotz, who wrote the book Subtract, was one of the people who was involved in that, is it turns out that when you prompt humans to think about subtraction and engage in subtraction and become mindful about it, we actually do it. And also rewarding them helps too. That's the bad news and the good news. Well, Bob, I'm going to congratulate you. That's the first George Carlin reference we've had. He's brilliant. <laughs> so I'm excited about the first we've had here today on that. <laughs> I would also say that quote is brilliant. It is amazing. And I actually didn't know all about George Carlin until I watched the documentary on, on HBO Max. And oh, was, that was amazing. I saw it. Oh, oh wow. What a life. What a life. So smart. Really amazing. But I think the subtraction piece is interesting and to pull the thread on the psychological piece of it. So much of what, who we are is in our work. Yes. Right? And so what creating is like, I'm creating, it's me. Like it's some part of me, just like this podcast is something I create. I'm, I'm passionate about it. Same thing at work. And so then when you subtract, you are, like we said, you're selling the baby's ugly or you're right. killing a project. People right. are like, oh, you're killing part of me. I designed that. And so that's the emotional people we had, we had to get past. And, and one of the examples you had in your book that I thought was brilliant, and maybe we could talk about that CEO that set up an incentive structure to subtract. One of the methods that over the years, and we've done this, I think since 2012, we've worked with more than 100 organizations, and sometimes it's just for an hour, and we'll have them play what we call the subtraction game. I've done the subtraction game in, recently in four minutes with a group of 50 executives. But what we do is essentially talk to a partner or a team and come up with stuff that is in the way, is driving them crazy, used to be effective, isn't anymore. And then we have them hopefully come up with a plan to subtract. So I've done this a lot of organizations, one with a large software company. And one that was really cool is that a guy, and this is a guy who had about a thousand people reporting to him. He changed his weekly executive committee meeting to every two weeks instead of every week, just on the spot. And then he killed one of these walking dead projects on the spot. He put it in chat and he just came on. And he said, I'm killing it right there. And this was like about 2014. This was a long time ago, maybe 2015. So I'm playing the subtraction game with the top 80 people in a large privately owned insurance company. So it's just a weird insurance company and the founder is in there. And the other weird thing about it was I'm doing the speech and the founder is sitting behind me in a chair above anyone. It was kind of a weird situation. Have you ever given a speech where they had somebody behind you who was above all of you? Just like very strange. And he stands up in the middle and he says, that I want two subtraction targets from each one of you, and there's going to be a $5,000 bonus, and I'm going to keep track of it. What ended up happening was after this talk, so I got like these 80 executives and one of my colleagues at Stanford, Perry Claybon, who I also celebrate in the book, 
Harry and I had the job of keeping track and pinging these executives about the subtraction targets. They would do things like get rid of bad procedures. Some of them got rid of meetings. One thing that did concern me is some of them did lay off people. And I'm worried that this is like an unintended, talk about magnification, an unintended positive consequence. That was sort of an extreme case. But sometimes little things can happen. Oh, one that was interesting, and I, this was just last year. This was at a pharmaceutical company. The chief legal officer stood up and he said, I couldn't believe this. He said, we have 83, he said, I've been counting them, 83 different parental leave policies in this company. And they're an international company. Some were mandated because there's different laws in different countries. But he said, I think we can get over at least 15 or 20 of them if we just make a list and just cross them out. That was pretty cool. Sometimes people just talk about it and they don't do anything. The subtraction game is in the book. It's really simple. You just have people brainstorm about what's in the way, what's driving them crazy, and say, gee, is it possible to actually get rid of it? Well, it's a great segue because for HR leaders, our role is to help our business leaders and organizations to think about how to be more effective, efficient, productive, better places to work. And some of these small things can really, really make a big impact. Yes. And Bob's Thinking about HR leaders, what are your recommendations do you have to influence their CEO uh, or business leaders on to reduce bad friction? Like, what else can we do to show that some of this isn't as well, helpful? That question, and funny, in anticipation of, of this interview, so many of my friends who are CHROs, now former CHROs, I got a bunch of friends who are former CHROs because they quit, are so worn out. I'm not telling your audience anything new, but it's like, one week, you had to send everybody home. Then there was the social justice movement, which was very important, but people had to deal with that. Then there was, in Silicon Valley, all this massive hiring. We hired like crazy during the pandemic. Now there's massive layoffs because they overhired. Now, in every organization I know, it's like, well, what do you do about having political discussion? First, it was red state, blue state, and now it's Palestinian versus Israelis. It's, it all falls on HR. The best I can do it, and one of my friends who is one of my former head of HR at a large tech company who just quit because she got burned out, she said that what she thought the mistake that she made is that she was so good, it's really veteran CHRO, at implementing things that she would protect the CEO and COO from the pain of things like all the people they had to hire and then two big rounds of layoffs. And this is a very profitable company, by the way. They still did two big rounds of layoffs. The perspective is that is that finding ways to protect the CEOs and COOs from friction, sometimes you got to have them experience the pain. And, and one thing that she did, which I thought was interesting, was they were doing layoffs on Zoom. And this is what's weird, doing layoffs on Zoom. Was there a George Clooney movie about laying off people that, in the end, up in the air, right? Was that it? Yeah. And this has actually happened. That seemed like fantasy at the time. Essentially, she said, We'll do them, but I want you to sit in the room with us and watch how much pain we're in and watch people cry. And this is an office building that had maybe 100 offices and maybe 15 people were in. The people were doing the layoffs, the CEO and the COO. And I thought that that's one of those things. We're not just talking about friction. We're talking about pain. And I think that almost buffering your CEO too well can be a problem. So we're going beyond friction here and we're getting to empathy. I didn't feel sorry for CHROs until I started getting to know them. And going through the journey the last three or four years with them has been so tough. It is a hard job, but I love your point on making sure leaders have empathy by experiencing what maybe other people are going through. Yep. And that's a little bit of that privilege piece and taking that away. I mean, when we go out and hire executives, there's a white glove process. It's not the same process that an individual contributor is going to go through. So we don't think about the privilege that people have throughout there. 
So your point of view is just saying, especially around that customer experience or more the organizational experience, it's maybe saying, hey, look, let me show you why we have five different HR systems we're using to hire somebody and why uh-huh. this is painful for my team and actually making someone sit through there. One of our chapters is essentially about how to glue together the different parts of the organization, the coordination problems. One of my favorite senior executives, his name's Carl Liebert. He wants us to use his name. At least he lets us. And Carl, going way back to when he was just a young Navy officer, he always goes down and tries to experience what people on the ground are experiencing. We talk about it in the book that he was a supply officer for a destroyer when he was in the Navy, when he was a young lieutenant. And as we know, like a ship runs on its stomach, what he would do is he would eat most of his meals in the cruise listed men's galley, the sailors, rather than with the fellow officers, because he wanted to talk to them about what food they liked and what food they didn't like and try to get the best possible food. And to me, that empathy is really important. It didn't work out too well, but he was CEO of Auto Nation briefly, which is the largest car auto dealership in the country. I don't know what happened, but there was a point where I was talking to him where he was going down to the parts department every Saturday, hanging out with the people in the parts department because he said that was one of the neglected parts of the dealership and it really actually made a lot of money and he wanted to optimize that. But to me, that's the kind of empathy that a good leader uses. And he was CEO of 24-Hour Fitness. He'd work out constantly and try to do it anonymously at the different franchises too or the different locations. What great leaders have, they're empathetic, they're curious, they're trying to solve problems, they're trying to make things better for their organization, right? Reduce that friction, right. especially at that point that has impact on value. And so I think that's brilliant. Bob, last question for you. What is one word or phrase you believe will define the future of HR over the next five to 10 years? Oh, gosh. To me, it's resilience and flexibility. So I'm cheating, but maybe they're the same thing. I can't see any situation under which it's going to be orderly, neat, and predictable, at least based on everything that we've seen. I don't know what's next, but I know it's going to be upsetting, and I know it's going to be a surprise. And in some ways, and this is almost like the last paragraph of the book, preparing yourself and preparing your people for the notion that life is going to be messy. Maybe that's what our motto should be here. And it's funny because there's two people who I've talked to a lot about that. One is David Kelly, the CEO of IDEO, who always, I've seen him lead IDEO. I've been one of his followers at Stanford in new operations. And he always says to us, life is going to be messy. You got to get ready for it. And then the person we quote at the end of the book, her name is is Clara Shai. She's the CEO of AI at Salesforce. Amazing woman. She wrote a best-selling book called The Facebook Era when she was 28. She was founding CEO of a company called Hearsay Systems. She's been on Salesforce on Starbucks board since she's 29. It's ridiculous. How do you lead people through difficult times? She said, I do two things. I tell them life's going to be messy. Things are going to be screwed up. We're going to be confused. And then she does this really cool thing. She calls it, it's from computer science, separation of concerns. What she does is she has the people who work on stuff that's working and then she has the cleanup crew, the people whose job it is to deal with the unexpected, uh, surprising, screwed up things. And I liked that distinction between the two because it's preparing for life to be messy. I'm changing my answer, which is life is going to be messy. Do the best you can to clean it up, but keep your people and yourself going emotionally too, because it's not going to be orderly. It's not going to be peaceful. I don't see how that happens. Bob, so many great insights. Really enjoyed this conversation. It was a blast. The book is The Friction Project. Cannot wait to read that and get that in everyone's hands. Thank you so much for being on the Future of HR podcast. Oh, thanks, JP. You are doing a service to people in HR all over the place. So thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Future of HR podcast. 
Thanks again to Bob for sharing his insights and how organizations can reduce bad friction and leverage good friction to improve how we work and deliver results. As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. And if you enjoyed this episode of Future of HR, be sure to subscribe, share a podcast with at least one other person, or please leave a review on Apple or Spotify podcasts. This really helps us grow the podcast and helps with our mission of inspiring the next generation of HR leaders. We'll be back next week with Kevin Wildey. Kevin's a thought leader in the talent and leadership development space, former VP organizational effectiveness and chief learning officer at General Mills, and now a speaker, professor, consultant, and author of a terrific new book called Coachability, The Leadership Superpower. Kevin's book puts a spotlight on the fact that we often talk about giving feedback, but not enough on how to receive feedback. In his research, he found that being coachable was one of the keys to success at work and in life. This was a great conversation, and it's full of practical ideas that you can put to use immediately in your organization. Don't miss it. Thanks again for listening to the future of HR and being part of our community.